Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Deep Talks. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner, and in today's episode, we're going to explore theology and story, theology and film, and to help us navigate this subject matter, we have a new guest, Justin Wells. Justin teaches documentary filmmaking at Biola University and is the author of How to Film Truth. Justin has multiple advanced degrees, including a master's in philosophy from California State University, Long Beach, a master of theology and art from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a master's in art and documentary film from the Art Center College of Design. Today's episode, we discuss his work on the patterns and shapes of stories in film, television, and literature, and how those guiding stories shape us. Is there a Christ-shaped story above all of our most compelling stories? We'll explore that in today's episode with Justin Wells. But before we begin, let me remind you that this is a listener-supported podcast free of advertisement, and it is because of generous supporters over on Patreon that we like to call patrons because of their support that I can keep doing what I'm doing. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, maybe it's one of the most listened podcasts in your rotation. If that's the case, I would invite you to become a supporter, help keep this work going, and you'll get access to a whole bunch of additional benefits that I think you'll find helpful. Bonus Q&A episodes, live Zoom conversations with me and listeners from all over. I think it's well worth your investment. So consider supporting on Patreon. You'll find a link in the description below. Welcome everyone to another episode of Deep Talks. I'm joined today by a new guest that I'm, I'm really excited to start dialoguing with. Our guest today is Justin Wells, and Justin has been doing some really fascinating things online that I've been following on his YouTube channel. On um, I refuse to call it X. I'm going to keep calling it Twitter. <laughs> uh, talking about the archetypal patterns that we see in storytelling. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We'll see where else it leads. But as I always like to do to introduce you to new people, to get to know them a little bit better, I'd like to start, Justin, by just talking a little bit about your professional work and then share what sorts of formative experiences in your life kind of steered you in the direction of what you're doing today. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Um, uh, so so I my dad was a pastor, grew up uh, mostly evangelical, uh, essentially evangelical, went to undergrad um, at an evangelical college. Then, um, in my, in my attempt to, to know more, always my, my sort of thirst for knowledge, I kind of went a little crazy with the master's degrees and I wound up getting a master's in, in, uh, philosophy from Cal state long beach. I studied, uh, theology at fuller theological seminary. And then I got my MFA master of fine arts in, um, at an art school, art center college of design here in Pasadena. And, um, all that that time uh, of of pursuing those those educational degrees were was all on the side. Um, I was a film major in undergrad, and I just joined the circus. I just went right into Hollywood, and uh, my trade by trade, I'm a camera technician. And so everybody has you know, you might think uh, a paycheck and a passion, you know. And so the, my 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 skill, my high level skill, um, is working um working on movies as a camera technician, and then. Um, I've always been involved with little documentaries on the side, little film projects on the side, passion projects uh, and academic projects. Um, so I wrote a little book on the history of documentary film. 
Um, any time that you've had almost anyone uh, talk, talking about the intersection between faith and film or, you know, theology and film or, um, you, you know, uh, film and people of faith. Uh, I've been around those those attempts. Um, you know, at Fuller, there was the Brem Center that I was a yes. part of, which, you know, we, we would go to Sundance Film Festival every year and we would do these dialogues hosted by an organization called the Windrider Forum, which was dialogues between people of faith and filmmakers. Um, and then Mako Fujimura, who was the artist in residence basically at the Brem Center here, would ran this thing in New York called the um, Arts, uh, let's see what it's called, IAM, International Arts Ministry, I think. Um, and now he does the Culture Care Institute. And so that was kind of like the dialogues between people of faith and fine art world. And then the Brim Center was doing film. And then um, I did a little bit of time. I got my little tiny taste of studying abroad by petitioning Fuller to allow me to take one course at the Institute for Theology, Imagination, and the Arts over in Scotland uh, wow. in, at St. Andrews University. Um, and that was kind of like there was a theologian over there called Jeremy Bigby, named Jeremy Bigby, who later went to Duke and he was doing theology and music mostly. So all of these different kind of like attempts to uh, I mean, my real desire was to have there be no real competition or let's say cognitive dissonance between my faith and spirituality and the art that I engage with. Um, and it, that's not necessarily an easy thing to achieve. You know, there's certainly, you know, um, a sense that, you know, the, you've got your screenwriting world and your Joseph Campbell style screenwriting books. And then you've got your, what you hear in church or what you read in your theology books. And, and are they, do they harmonize? Are they opposed to each other? You know, so those sort of questions I've always been kind of, um, kind of thinking about. And my little book on documentary film came out of every year going to the, to the Sundance Film Festival and watching documentaries and noticing this very um, sort of healing quality to the way that these stories were being told. And this idea that by being in a documentary, the subject was better off more, um, you know, psychologically and um, mentally stable than they were before. And so that would led to me kind of doing the first book that I know of that really in the, in the very, very tiny academic field of theology and film to focus on nonfiction specifically. Um, and right now um, I'm doing a YouTube series on the seven basic plots, the idea that there's seven archetypal plots. And so I'm kind of, I know that's, I'm all over the place, but I'm fascinated by everything. <laughs> yes. I get that. I get that experience. I'm, re I, I, I'm interested in, a part of your backstory, Justin, because I think um, as you shared, coming up in an evangelical home and in evangelical context, there are a wide range of responses that I have noticed people who have come up like myself and like yourself in those contexts, wide, wide range of responses to the arts, to film, ranging from, and we could, you know, kind of use Niber's Christ and culture typology ranging from Christ against culture, right? Where there were certainly even people in my own church community growing up who they didn't have TVs in their homes, right? Ranging all the way to like Christ of culture where 
people actually find it really, really difficult to differentiate between the guiding story that culture is telling, whether it's through Hollywood, whether it's through indie films, through those stories and the perhaps the truth that transcends those stories. So what was your childhood informative experience like to nurture that? Or were you kind of like maybe, uh, you know, sticking a middle finger to the man and going, oh, this is what I'm, I find myself attracted to this and I'm really going to go into it no matter what you say. Which, which one was more like the case for you? I think that the default view of that environment that I grew up in was probably mo mostly the against culture view. Um, and it was because, you know, a lot of our parents were, you know, had very dramatic conversion experiences. And so there's a sense of kind of like a radical, you could say, break with almost everything normal education wise. You know, there's the homeschooling movement, um, just uh, sort of a, a like, I won't let anything new in. I'm going to cultivate a, a completely pure environment and I won't let anything new in until I've vetted it. And it takes a long time to vet it, you know, so it would be like kind of Harry Potter. Hmm. Well, at first we're going to be against it until we've maybe we'll kind of try to figure out a way that we can let it in. You know, Lord of the Rings, you know, hmm. at first we're going to be against it. I, I, I found um, a, a tattered copy of the Lord of the Rings at a rummage sale. And my dad had read The Hobbit to us when we were kids. And I was probably 14. I found this and I gave it to my brother. I was like, oh, my God, I, I found a more to the story. You know? And I was like reading those, like, like secretly, like the scrolls, you know, like just fascinated, you know, I didn't know there was a backstory to this or whatever, you know? And I remember my dad said, um, you know, when I was in college, it was all of the people in, into drugs that were reading that, you know? So that was his initial mm -hmm. response. Right. But he saw that I was so into it that he was, okay, I'll read it. You know, next thing you know, he's fascinated by it. He loves it. He thinks it's the best thing ever. You know, so, but that was kind of like the process. It was kind of like skeptical at first, you know, and then of course, later on, I wound up being the TA, one of the TAs and Richard Mao's famous Christ and culture course at Fuller Seminary. Wow. And we wow. would go through those five ways. And, um, and there was this uh, sense that everybody was wanting to come up with a wider, not, not a, like a low resolution, simple uh, good, bad, you know, right. Christian, non-Christian thing. Um, but slowly what kind of emerged for me was this awareness that the ground on which you're standing was formed from Western civilization and Western civilization is, is, was formed by the Judeo Christian tradition. And so one, for example, one, one, uh, formative book for me was, um, the Catholic imagination. And then a, a, a follow-up book to that was, um, after Image, which was about the Catholic imagination in six American filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, um, Brian De Palma, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, um, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, etc. Right. And it showed how, whether or not they were practicing Catholics, how the way that they use redemption in their movies, the notion of a sacramental reality in their movies, you know, all of these sort of Catholic things were coloring their imagination. And you realize um, it's not quite so simple as that, you know, it's not so, quite so simple as like Christian, non-Christian, yes. good, bad, you know, it's, it's a much more uh, 
rich and 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 uh, and wild world that we live in that's been sort of saturated by you know these these sort of Christian values. It's like a big river of values and presuppositions and assumptions and you know all of this stuff. Someone like Tom Holland now, the British historian, is sort of like showing, oh, you know, this this is the, the the ground that you're standing on. This is the waters that you're swimming in. And so it's very difficult to categorize things uh, in that simplistic way now. Definitely, definitely. So that's, that's great. Um, I mean, you being at Fuller, from my vantage point, is probably one of the premier epicenters for this dialogue around theology and culture. Uh, I certainly looked at there uh, as one potential PhD option years ago in their theology and culture PhD program and some of the stuff coming out of there from the Brem Center. And was, I don't remember, was, was Robert K. Johnston there? Um, I don't know if you ever read Real Spirituality. I'm guessing probably at yeah. some point you did. Um, but I think they've really been, and maybe it's the, the California connection. I really see that they were really leading the charge in a more nuanced um, between the, the, the two extremes of Christ against culture and Christ of culture, the, the, those mediating positions really grappling with that. And uh, I find it incredibly fascinating. I find it fascinating because I think one of uh, on multiple levels, one of which is this um, this kind of uh, Maybe even calling it a theory might might be going too far because there hasn't really been any. I don't think there's been any real scientific uh, data and research to to confirm it. But there is certainly one correlative, if not causal, connection that Robert K. Johnston mentions in Real, Real Spirituality that I've I've affectionately called did, did blockbuster video kill the church thesis, and uh, he presents this interesting connection again more research needs to be done to really affirm this as having a a causal connection that the rise of the home video store you know beginning really in the the early 1980s you can begin to see the patterns correlating patterns don't know if they're causal or not correlating patterns between the expansion of the home video store which some of my listeners and viewers right now are like, what are you talking about? The younger ones, <laughs> what's a home video store? Um, there was a time in which there were, you literally, the theater was like the only place, or if a movie came on television, that would be really the only place you could go. And so the home video store was this brand new, um, I don't want to go as far as to compare it to the printing press, you know, in terms of its cultural impact. But from my vantage point, it's very, very close. I mean, the dissemination of story takes on a whole new level with blockbuster video, the family videos, whatever other mom and pop video stores were out there. And so this, this, this possible theory correlates the decline of church attendance with the rise of the consumption of other guiding stories. And when you step back, it is very difficult to imagine from an aesthetic perspective, from even just a competency in storytelling and communication perspective, it is very hard to imagine your local church competing with the Avengers or, for me as a kid, Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And within these stories are claims to reality, to what is true, good, and beautiful. There are claims to what the good life looks like. And I think nuanced engagement with that is extremely important because I would, I still really personally, I hold to 
this to be true that that far more than what people experience in 60 or 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, whether they are Christian or some other religious tradition, those stories, if you live in America, are far more formative in your life than um, the 60 or 90 minutes you go to church on Sunday. So if we don't have thoughtful engagement with the film industry, with television and streaming, I think I think we're just kind of our head in the sand. What, what, what do you think about that, Justin? Well, uh, so we, we would do, I went twice to Orvieto, Italy for these little two-week summer uh, classes on medieval spirituality and art. And we'd go with a sculptor and uh, a couple of professors and we would we would kind of live in Italy and, and take these courses. And if you go to that little town of Orvieto, you'll see all of these little streets and roads, but then you'll come out at one point and it'll open up to this square and there will be this magnificent cathedral, this Duomo that is full of art. And it goes all the way back to the 1100s all the way up to Savarnielli, who is a contemporary of Michelangelo with almost 3D like paintings inside there. One of the most uh, amazing things you could ever see. I remember that I was making a video for them and I, I chose to focus the camera on the faces of the people when they came to see that thing for the first time and just them looking up the awe on their faces, right? You can imagine that this would have been more Awe, you know, emotional, awe-inspiring, yes. everything. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. the, the the most aesthetic experience in their life, and it was bound up with the religion. It was the religion, you know, yes. and it was this big, this huge show, showcase. And even now, today, I mean, to contemplate that there are expressions of these truths in the form of sculptures and. Uh, your paintings and architecture and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that go back a thousand years. You know, this was Thomas Aquinas's church, uh, vacation church, apparently. Um, wow. uh, even then it, it, it impacted these students so much that it was, that it blew away any movie you could say, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so that there's a, a famous quote. Uh, well, I, it's famous to me because I quote her all the time. A quote by this guy named Brent S. Plate, a scholar of, of, of religion and, and art, uh, called, and he says, uh, dig around in art and you find religion, dig around in religion and you find art. You know, that the idea that the two things are, are very much bound together. Um, and they always have been, you know. So uh, there's a real sense that um, even though we've kind of separated out the sacred and the secular, you might say, and you've got church over here and the church is in a, maybe in a building that doesn't have anything except for one cross on the, on the, on the behind the podium or something, but there is music, you know, however people kind of like navigate that, you're just never going to get away from the fact that the human condition um, expresses itself in artistic and religious ways very similarly. And so even if you try to separate them out, you're still going to find religion in film. That's what, that's what I learned with all of my education is that um, religious questions and ideas, however you, whatever you mean by religion, you know, but theological ultimate questions um, and concerns and ruminations um, just sort of went into film, even if people weren't trying to, 
you know? Yes. And, and so it's like, yes, they're, they're always going to be related in some way, even if it's just on the sense of, you know, you're going to get a lot of your meaning making apparatus or engagement through the art forms within your culture, just as much, or if not more than from the church in your culture. Yes. You know? Completely agree. And then you take and maybe break apart the components of what people are experiencing when they go to the theater or they're, they're, they're watching on their, their big screens at home. Now, um, you break down the components of what's happening. Obviously you have in, in most in all cases, there is, there's always an aesthetic component, but there are obviously ranging degrees of experiences of beauty that people have when they are, are taking in a film, dependent on how you know, maybe daring the, the filmmaker is and how competent the cinematography team is, et cetera, et cetera. But that that experience of beauty is what separates, right? You know, when somebody sits down and they actually watch The Lord of the Rings, even though that came, you know, Peter Jackson's iteration came out already. It's already been 20 years, right? There's something still they captured something in uh, the in the aesthetic experience that still holds and gives people a sense of awe and wonder when you see these these huge um these 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 panning shots of you know imaginary realms uh it, it fills people with a sense of awe which is one of the foremost religious experiences that opens us up to a sense of transcendence moves us out of what we would might call our default mode of egotistical concerns that that survival mode and so to move into awareness of transcendence you know the, the literature and in, 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 on the cognitive studies on this or cognitive science on this demonstrates we need to have some sort of uh, shifting of that normative frame out of our egocentric survival instincts, which we need to have, like we need to be, we need to stay alive. That's really, really important. But experiences of awe are one of the things that make us aware of a power transcendent to us and open us up to transcendent possibilities. It kind of lifts the ceiling of that, um, uh, of that imminent frame to use Charles Taylor's language. So that's one component. But then you also have not just the experience of awe, but seemingly all stories have a, a moral dimension to them. They're pointing you to what the good life is, or in some some cases, you know, I was just reflecting with my wife the other day on how many, how many really dark movies there were when we were in in high school that were really like, I step back and go, why were we, I mean, that was a lot to take in. I think about seven, uh, Silence of the Lambs. And those yeah. stories aren't necessarily something you look at and go, well, that's telling you what the good life looks like, but it's certainly portraying the opposite, right? As in like, you probably want to stay away from this ditch over here, which is still moral instruction. So a sense of awe, moral instruction. And there is, especially when you go to the mo movie theater, right? There is kind of this liturgical experience of being in the movie theater. You walk in, you're already cued to the social environment in a similar way. You might be cued to the, the proper behavior that you should participate in when you step into a, a sanctuary at a church or a cathedral. The theater does that as well. You know, the, there's the liturgy of the uh, of the uh, the previews before the movie. And then, you know, typically now some obnoxious person coming on and telling you to silence your phone, which I, I guess I'm glad that they do. But that there's a liturgical rhythm to that, that in some ways apes or mimics uh, the liturgical experience uh, of, of Sunday morning worship. You take these components and you go, OK, this is this is really powerful stuff that has the propensity to really shape not just 
our imaginations or propositional beliefs we might have about reality, but really to affect us at a core level. I'm wondering for you if there were particular films that you look back and you go, I had what might be akin to a religious or quasi-religious experience attached to this in a way that you felt was was like deeply transformative in your life. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you mention the notion of these rituals, you know, because there there is a sense that if even if you you don't know you're doing it consciously, we would do what I now know are little mini versions of kind of religious rituals around Star Wars. You know, I mean, we had vigils basically when I was in college, when those prequels were coming out, my roommates and quad mates would go and they would wait all, I didn't ever did it. I always would just say, you guys save the spot and I'll, I'll come later. But, uh, but they would literally wait all night for this. And then they would dress up and cosplay um, I was recently reading a little book about um, a, a couple that moved to Greece in the 1950s um, to kind of go on a little adventure. They moved to the island of Crete and they, they have this description of a festival. It was a Pascha festival in one of the cities on the island of Crete in the 1950s. And it was all like everybody had a, something to bring to the to the party, you could say. You know, so it's like at this time of the year, this is what we all do. And even still in Greece, because I worked on a movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding Three, so uh, two summers ago. So we were, lived in Greece for for a couple months, and even still, every town has a patron saint from the Orthodox Church, and they will do these parties where it's like food and dancing and rituals and all this stuff. You know, and so it's funny, like to think, okay, well, we don't do that in America. We don't have these festivals, but we kind of invented one you know, mm -hmm. around Star Wars, you know, so and, and there's a real sense, you know, I think if you look at the 20th century and you look at uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien and Walt Disney, all three of them were trying to recover something that had been lost. Uh, you might call it a sincere form of storytelling or something like that, but both uh, Tolkien and Lewis went back into the medieval world. And then uh, Walt Disney went to, to Europe and looked at all the castles and stuff and said, wow, this is amazing. I want to I want to I want to capture this and take it with me. And when he when he made his sincere, straightforward version of Snow White, that wasn't how they were telling stories at the time. They were telling weird uh, ex German expressionist stories and stuff like that in, in the 20s and 30s. So Walt Disney I mean, it's kind of a weird to say that I would choose things that are so seemingly obvious, but Walt Disney, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis probably formed my way of engaging with the world in, in such a fundamental way that only now as an adult looking back and ruminating on it, do I realize how much that works through your life, you know, how much of just the way that the characters in these stories make their moral choices or navigate their challenges or encounter their antagonists in life that really colors almost underneath your conscious um yes. you, underneath your conscious like here's how i make decisions yes kind of thing you know it's underneath there and it's like it's like a little software or something that's running inside like of effective with an a 
right? Mm-hmm. Effective yes. on that level, affecting emotions. Like that's a great way of putting it. It's software underneath your hardware. Hmm. Yeah. I, it's oh, interesting. I mean, I'm just, it's not like a, an experience, like, like you're saying, like a, like I had a, an, a, a, a but I'm, I'm saying just over time, these stories just kind of work their way in. Mm-hmm. For me, Justin, one of them that I look back on that was actually really, really important. I've talked about this before. It was, um, was Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. Uh, that for me, was, as I look back, of course, Star Wars, Disney, it's just interesting to see how uh, yeah, I think back of all the things we I weren't allowed to watch or listen to and how among not just my own home, but among my friends, how like universally approved Disney was. And if I go into those same Christian settings now, there's a very different posture towards Disney. That's um, been quite a quite a cultural change there. But um, so there's certainly had those those stories. But uh, I always come back to Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, one because of its aesthetic effect on me, uh, opening me up to a story that I, I actually really needed to see at a particular time in my life. And that in that particular time in my life, I was so deeply immersed in very, very, um, we're talking a third wave charismatic culture, charismatic conferences, uh, prophetic conferences, very, very deep in that. And there were many good things that happened there. But one of the things I became painfully aware of as I was taking in this film, and and I'm not, a, I'm not an easy crier, I just bawled my eyes out because I had been hit with this revelation of my own inner Gnosticism that that film exposed. I had this very bifurcated view of, of, of reality in which I placed sacredness on the, um, the, the charismatic experiences and ministry. And I had no real sense of sacredness for where the vast majority of my life was held my relationship with my wife, my kids, I knew they were valuable. I would, I would never deny that. I knew they were valuable, but I was certainly not attaching the same sense of sacredness as I was to when I was, for example, leading like a 24 seven prayer ministry. And we had been in a prayer room for about four hours. That for me was sacred. The other stuff was, was good, but a lesser good. And that movie wrecked me because somehow Terrence Malick had the creative vision to somehow capture the sacredness of the ordinary in even just the, even just his, uh, again, it was more the aesthetic experience. Certainly there was a story there, but his, and you will be able to speak to this with much more professional ability than I, but there were the, the, the shot selection of the things he would zoom in on, which were just these little slivers of mundane life. And then the way that he connected that, to the story of creation, which a lot of people were like, why did he do that? That sliver that happens probably in the first third or halfway through the movie where all of a sudden we're taken from the big bang all the way through the end of, you know, the Jurassic period and how that, and that for some struck people as very strange. But for me, I was like, Oh my goodness, I get it. He's connecting everything from the grandiose, the creation of the cosmos to this little family story. And I, I repented. I had metanoia because of that. And for me, I, I always go back to that as like, if, if not anything, it's, uh, it's an encouragement to Christians who have an attraction to the arts to stick with it for 
the full, truly redemptive, and I don't just mean like Billy Graham altar call redemptive, but truly that was a moment, a beginning of a redemptive journey in my life that was a necessary, necessary experience. And I, I, I frequently come back to that film um, when I feel like I need to repent again, you know, and it had that it had that effect on on my life what sorts of patterns you know you've done on your youtube series justin you've you've done quite a bit of work on these archetypal patterns that we see in stories and i think one of the things i try to help people do is to be more consciously aware of how these stories are shaping us not to deny their, 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 their character shaping, their theological imagination shaping capacity to accept that, but not to be as best we can, not just to be a passive consumer of it, where it enters into us and shapes us in ways that we're not aware of, but to try to be aware of how these stories shape us. And I think one, one of the things you're doing, Justin, might be really helpful for people to be um, not cynical about in their engagement with film, but I think to have like a conscious awareness of, is this one of maybe the archetypal patterns that I would fully anticipate creating a specific emotive effect in me or moving me in a particular way, not to deny that it is, or even accept good or bad propositions yet, but to be aware of it. Could you talk a little bit about these different story shapes, the, um, the, the archetypal patterns, and uh, maybe just give like a brief overview on, on each of them. I know that's, you've been doing long form videos on this. To, so to ask you to condense it is a, a difficult endeavor, but do the best you can. <laughs> sure. First of all, I just want to say that story about Terrence Malick is beautiful. Mm -hmm. You, you essentially um, experienced what I think is the essence of Vincent van Gogh, which is if you look at just I'm going to answer your question in a second, but I just have to say, when you look at the sower, the sower, um, if, if you go to the, the, the Vincent van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, you'll see all of these religious paintings that were influences of him with the halo and the no notion of holiness, right? And then he goes and he does the sower, and the sower is a guy who's planting seeds in the physical ground, but the sun forms a halo behind his head. You know, Terrence Malick is a kind of a this generation's Vincent Van Gogh, I think. Yes. Anyway, that's just a, <laughs> that's Thanks my reaction. That. To, so to that's a great, great piece to add. Um, okay. So, so this is kind of like what I've been wrestling with. Um, I, I've had, you know, lots of interactions with um, folks in the secular Hollywood world of storytelling. You know, I did Robert McKee's famous story seminar um, you know, we did, we read screenwriting 101 and save the cat and, you know, all these different screenwriting books and the writer's journey, Christopher Vogler, you know, all these different ways. And it's kind of like, there's this real lowest common denominator sense in Hollywood of this is what's going to help you be successful as a filmmaker, kind of like use these formulas. Like Joseph Campbell was used by George Lucas and look what happened. He made all this money and he got all the success. And so now you can do the same thing. But I always, always wanted to go a little deeper than that. And I would talk to screenwriters and they'd say, yeah, there's something to that mythological stuff. But, you know, mostly I just use it as kind of a guide to make sure that my story works. And that's the main thing in Hollywood. It's like, does the story work? Do, do people like it? Um, and I was like, I want to take my 
theology, my study of theology, my study of the Bible and the stories in the Bible and try to do a, like figure out what's really going on here. What is what constitutes what makes a good story? And one of the other challenges was that when I would have students or friends within the Christian world that would try to use the Bible, they would often come out with a bad story. <laughs> You know, they would they'd try to, well, I'm going to put Christ in this story. And it's like, well, how come that story doesn't really work? You know, so what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> how come it's a bad story? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I thought, well, okay, what, what I'm just going to try. If you can think about, you know, this culture as like a big stream, I'm just going to start going upstream and I'm going to see how far I can get. So I, I started with this, which is this big fat book called The Seven Basic Plots. Like this British, uh, he was a British um, journalist, and uh, um, I don't think he was really much of a of an academic or a novelist, but he 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 really studied story structure, and he had this idea that there are seven archetypal plots. He's probably a little bit more based in the Jungian psychological tradition than anything else. Uh, but I thought, well, that's a good place to start. Why don't I go through all seven plots and look and use my kind of like his analysis of these seven plots, but also I'm going to try to look for like resonances and harmonies and, um, you know, deeper things that I think are going on um, and use my knowledge of biblical stories and see if I can't, you know, for example, he, he thinks that the story of Joseph is a rags to riches story. And, and it's is he like, doing this before Kirk Vonnegut just talked about the, you know, uh, he wrote this in 2003, I think. Okay. So this was after Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Kurt Vonnegut, basically, if you watch the little talk by Kurt Vonnegut on yeah. the shape of stories, mm -hmm. um, he goes through essentially a rags to riches story, the Cinderella yeah. story. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's where I started. And I, now I, I'm, I'm starting to now go a little bit beyond Booker and integrate some of my own theories on how biblical stories work and whether or not you can use my, my main test is you know, what can I say to my students that will make them make a better story? That's the main test. Because if I tell them something and they write something worse, then I'm like, that's probably not the right way to do it. You know, so the seven basic plots, according to Booker, are overcoming the monster, rags to riches, voyage and return, comedy, tragedy, quest and rebirth. Hmm. Um, now, I plot those out on a, on um, a two mountain system, uh, like the first half of life and the second half of life that you'll hear someone like David Brooks talk about, which is the mountain of success and the mountain of legacy. The idea that you kind of like um, first you achieve a bunch of things and then you give it all back. And that's mm -hmm. like that's the the two mountains. And so you're going up the, the the mountain, you have rags to riches is the first story, which is your just pure potential. You don't know anything yet. You don't know about proper leadership or competence or how to accomplish anything in the world. And that's what the hero of the rags to riches, you know, Aladdin, Cinderella, Ratatouille, a lot of Disney Rocky. movies, Rocky. Yes. Um, a lot of children's stories, you know, and it's this idea of how to go from knowing nothing and then encountering a mentor, like a fairy godmother, a genie, a coach who teaches you how to box um, and then learning basically how to become a ruler, you know, um, not following the pitfalls of zero sum game thinking or, uh, you know, there's usually a stepmother or a stepfather or some kind of a, an imposter um, in charge, like a Prince John to King Richard type of a thing. And then the hero has to learn not to do that 
and then use the magic of the genie um, to finally um, overcome the antagonist. It's, it's a very popular story. So then, so that would be the first story in, in your life, let's say. And then the next story would be overcoming the monster. And overcoming the monster is once you've carved out a little bit of habitable order for yourself, once you're the ruler of a little kingdom and you, you're, you've got your, your, uh, your safe place, then you're going to encounter bullies in the world because if you have something, there's always going to be a bully who wants to, you know, attack yes. it. So, so overcoming the monster would be like Jaws and Jurassic Park and monster movies where you've got a little island of tranquility and habitable order and safety. And then the monster is kind of like attacking that border. So in lots of Westerns, like High Noon, where the, 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 the bad guy's coming on the noon train to, to shoot you, you know? And, mm -hmm. and so it's navigating that. It's, it's encounter, encountering bullies. Um, and then, um, comedy and tragedy are kind of the top of that mountain of success. Um, comedy is about finding your proper place in the world, finding your other half, finding your identity. That's why in comedies, there's always mistaken identities, confusion. So there's like confusion going to clarity, you know, in comedy. Mm -hmm. And then tragedy is like this devolution of that from clarity, yeah. you know, some kind of a tragic flaw. I, I did a, a couple of long talks on tragedy. I think there's two kinds of tragedy, Greek and, and Judeo-Christian. That's a longer discussion. Um, and then quest, which is the quest story is your, your typical hero's journey story. Mm -hmm. I sort of characterize that as going from the one mountain to the next mountain. It's usually a midlife story. So it's Dante. Halfway through the journey of my life, I found myself lost in a dark wood. And then he goes on his, his quest journey. Bilbo, um, Frodo. You know, these, these characters that kind of like they, they're, they're, they, they're ready to go on this quest, which is, which is to go out and find the, they've already live in a safe place. They've already accomplished something. They've already had these other stories kind of like the rags to riches, the overcoming the monster in mini form. And, but now they're going to have to get their legacy. You know, now they got to find the thing, the elixir, like in, in Joseph Campbell to bring back to the community. And that's going to become the mountain of legacy. That's how I, mm. I I'm thinking about it. And then finally, you have your rebirth story, which is now that's passing everything on to the next generation. You know, so that's Ebenezer Scrooge in Christmas Carol. You know, th this kind of like rebirth of the now the cycle can start over again. Groundhog Day is a, is a great rebirth story. So that's kind of how I think of all seven. That's my way of kind of categorizing them. And the reason why I, I find it useful is because I like to take the students then and say, OK, well, maybe one of these is kind of your your your. Um, your creative sensibilities are clicking into this archetype. So maybe you can explore that a little bit more. Exactly what is that archetype trying to teach you about what stage of life that you're in? Something like yes. that. Yes. Yes, that's beautiful. See, this this is this is great, Justin. Oh, I love this so much. Okay. Because I love even that you 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 picture this as happening in, in, in two mountains or two phases. And there I can see there being even within oh, this might get meta here. Even within the story, there is an assumed story on top. So, yeah. for example, when we think about all of these together as one story or as a, a trajectory of stories. So the first first half of life being the, the climbing the mountain of success. We've got competing stories of what that climb and the definition of what success would look like is the point of climbing that mountain to accumulate wealth, 
possessions, fame, or is it actually to, are we trying to fortify character so that from a place of strong, fortified moral character, we have something to give in the legacy phase of life? So that for me is would be really interesting. You know, you, you, you could take us a, a rags to riches story. And if the rags to riches story doesn't actually, if it leads to an Ebenezer Scrooge who goes unchanged, right? You would almost have to say that it, it's a, it would be a failure, even though that story in and of itself might look like, and the happily ever after looks like a person becoming wealthy like Ebenezer Scrooge. But it misses out on that second half of life, the legacy half of life, which is okay. So now you've, you know, Scrooge went through. You see that in his story, right? I love Christmas Carol. I mean, Dickens just killed it. It's just beautiful. Um, <laughs> but you can see his rags to riches story as he goes back with the ghost of Christmas past, right? Mm -hmm. And he's actually seeing what this guy has gone through. And you develop a sense of sympathy for his story and realizing, oh, he actually did overcome things to get to the position that he is. But what we have to do as the people engaging with the story is to have some other meta story. I hope people are still tracking with this. <laughs> we have to have some other meta story that can press down and make the value assessments on whether or not what we are celebrating in the story is worth celebrating and giving our attention to. And I, I'm trying to think of, think of other, you know, other well, so, examples. Okay, Citizen Kane. Think of Citizen Kane. Okay. Right? Yeah. Talk about that. So Citizen Kane is, is Ebenezer Scrooge who never made it to the second mountain. Yes. Right? He, he, the whole movie, is it okay if I spoil it for people? Please do. That's fine. Okay. It's been out for a hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> so, you know, so Charles Foster Kane, you know, he, he starts the newspaper. You see him obstacle after obstacle, overcoming, overcoming. But there's this sense that he gets off the, the true path in some way. And I usually find that the clue, because it finally results in a tragedy, you know, and a tragedy is a rebirth story that never happened. You know, somebody that dies on the first mountain, let's say, or dies in the valley between the first and the second mountains. Um, is you look at the love interest usually they're they are like the canary in the coal mine and they can tell that something's not right with charles foster kane so he there's that famous scene where they start out in the table and they're like this and then every uh, year the table gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they're finally all the way on the other side of the table and he's become obsessed with his work and he, of course, he winds up with all of this heaps and heaps and piles of stuff, antiquities and statues and art and everything, and um, and dies alone. You know, um, so there's a sense that yeah, that's exactly it. Like the um, the 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 values are being um, sort of implicitly given to us with these stories on multiple levels. So Charles Foster Kane is a failed rags to riches. So that's a track that's called a tragedy, you know, hmm. and, and Ebenezer Scrooge would be if Charles Foster Kane were to have a rebirth, that's what yes. it would look like. That assumes though, as we are measuring whether or not one story is tragic and whether one story is a happily ever after it, 
it causes us to engage with another layer of story on top, right? Because yeah. there seems to be, I'm, I'm like workshopping this with you out loud, Justin. So there is the, maybe a, these archetypal patterns, maybe they're like micro archetypal, and yet there is a macro archetypal that we are then measuring them up and against. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been difficult for people in the West is, as you mentioned with Tom Holland, is we assume the shared story, let's just say kind of generic Christian story, right? Not that we've all ever universally agreed on the details, but that something about what the the ultimate life looks like. It looks like the pattern of Christ's life. So we lay down our life for others. That's why, right? You, you can't, that when, even as something as popcorn as the Avengers movies, when they go to try to figure out what is going to be the most climactic moment after 15 years of storytelling, how do we actually want to show the pinnacle of what a hero looks like? It looks like Tony Stark not just like beating Thanos to a bloody pulp and beheading him or something like that, which might be like, if you set that in ancient Greece, that might yeah. be the thing that their, their highest ideal that they would picture of that hero. But instead, Tony Stark sacrificially lays down his life in an act of altruistic behavior, which we all go hero blind to the fact that I think our sense of that being a heroic act is shaped by some deeper story in our cultural programming. And I see that like right now we're in this moment where uh, because that story has, is shifting in our culture to where there are certainly more questions about its trueness, about even it's like efficacy. Is this actually an effective story? Whether it's a Nietzschean critique or even, um, you know, I, I even see some uh, you might say like uh, liberation theology on steroids critiques of we should not be lionizing victims, right? Because by lying, lionizing them and celebrating people who have laid down their life, we are allowing those to continue to oppress them, The which is connected to me like Nietzsche's critique of slave morality, that the Christian story is a nice story if you're on the underside of history and you can't control your outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we're right now in this like civil civilizational wide reassessment of our stories. And I, I, I see like the thing that's on top of these is kind of still being a little bit Tom Holland's right. We're blind to the ways in which, we want to actually cheer for the person on the screen that's poor in spirit. We're blind to why we would cheer for them because we have been deeply shaped, even not in our own generation, but the culture has still been deeply shaped by this notion that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek for the meek will inherit the, inherit the earth. Like that's, that's mm -hmm. the, the ultimate rags to riches story is the like yeah. eschatological reversal of history where those who have been on the underside, those who have been poor, those who have been victimized on the day of judgment, there's this great reversal and the just king of the world will do what is right. So if we have that story, we celebrate when we see people at the bottom somehow, especially those that have been clearly portrayed as being oppressed. Uh, I mean, one of the 
great examples of this, which is a retelling of a biblical story for me, is Prince of Egypt. I mean, that movie is beautiful. We, I think people of all different traditions root for the oppressed Hebrew people in that movie to be liberated. And it's done so well. Um, so, but that again, what happens, I'm really thinking through what is happening as we kind of lose that like meta story. And yet Hollywood is still trying to tell a story that when you say all they care about is what works and you could go really cynically, well, are they just trying to say what sells? But yeah, yeah, yeah. But what sells is also, it's, it's like what people want to see. Yeah. So it's, it's not just what, as simple yeah. as like dollar, like pure greed. They're trying to figure out what kind of story is attractive to people. And the way that you measure the attraction is by box office sales, right? Yeah. It's what you, it's what people need unconsciously. Maybe, you know, mm. that that's when something really works. Yeah. Just works, you know? And, and so I think there's this notion of the a theological notion called the grooves of creation. You know, and it's this idea that this that the world is constructed in such a way that there's certain grain to reality. And if you're trying to go against it, you just can't do it for very long. You know, so it's like when in, in the 60s, when they're trying to do absurdist art and Dadaism and stuff like, well, we're not going to follow any of these rules. Well, it's like it, you can't do it for very long. Eventually, you're going to kind of click in. And so that's what I noticed with these archetypes is why do these archetypes keep returning? You know, they've been trying to deconstruct the archetypal stories since the 1800s in the, in the world of novels. You know, you can go back to Chekhov and Waiting for Godot, and you can even go to like Frankenstein and Moby Dick, you know, like where they're saying, I'm not going to tell the, I'm going to do an inversion. I'm going to do a, a different take. I'm going to make it ironic. I'm going to change the protagonist to the anti-hero or whatever it is. But you always get these little resets in history. You know, and I would put Disney as one reset, Star Wars as one reset, you know, where it's kind of just like it just clicks in and someone discovers it and they go, oh, it kind of should go like this, don't you think? And, people, you know, especially when it's a team of writers, that's why animations are always so often so good is because they really work out the story. And what they're doing is they're, I think they're kind of like exploring the grooves of creation and things are just kind of fitting into place. And when they do, they teach you these lessons that run deeper than your conscious mind. You know, mm -hmm. like there was a, I, I think a moment where Jordan Peterson was talking to uh, uh, Bill Maher and he was explaining one of the biblical stories to him. And Bill Maher said, well, how could, they wouldn't have figured that, they wouldn't have consciously known that, you know, whatever the lesson he was trying to say, Jordan Peterson was trying to say. And, and Peterson said, I think rightly, um, well, when you watch a story or listen to a story, you learn something, but you might not know it consciously that yes. you're learning something, you know? Yes. So it's something like that. It's like the artistic task is kind of like the hero's journey, but you not to write, but to go on where you're going into the unknown, you're feeling around with these archetypes. You're going, what is a monster anyway? I'm going to make a monster movie. What is a monster? What does that represent? What is chaos? You know, and, and over time you're discovering these kind of like grooves and they kind of click into place. And, and the ones that you hear about are the ones that get out there and then resonate with people. And then say, someone says, well, I'm going to make a variation of that because I resonated with it so much. And then it becomes a little mini tradition, like these little comic book 
worlds or, you know, and people, then they start dressing up as that thing and it, it becomes this big thing. And I think it's because of the ordered world that we live in has certain qualities and characteristics and you can't help but find them. It doesn't matter what you consciously believe about this or that so much as if you're honest about how you're exploring the human condition and the reality that we live in, you're going to eventually find these things. What I'm trying to do is maybe just speed up the process a little bit by making some of those things conscious, you know, with my students. Yes. Yeah. Making them conscious of it. Do you think if we were to step back and we take maybe, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you're predominantly focused on the stories that emerge in the West, but I think about, um, not to make like a shameless plug for one of my YouTube videos, but there is clearly something my most watched YouTube video has to do with Godzilla minus one, which was Toho Japanese, not even part of this like legendary monster verse. It has no connection really to what's been going on in the American Godzilla stories or that new Apple series that they have totally independent, very much focused on the intricacies of Japanese culture post World War II. I don't know if you've seen it yet or not. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah. And everybody, I keep seeing the same comment over and over. It's like, oh, Hollywood should take notice. And I find it interesting because on some level, I've been suspicious of whether or not when these archetypal stories emerge, and I can notice when they're happening. I notice when they work and when they don't work. Like why season one and season two of The Mandalorian work, but the sequel trilogy from my vantage point didn't. And mm -hmm. I go, I, I think there was some missing thing where they were, they were trying to usurp some, some patterns here and have done so ineffectively. And then when people got really critical about it, it's like, well, just because people are upset because a woman is a lead in, in star Wars. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not the case. If you go to hardcore star Wars nerd community and you ask them about Ahsoka as a character throughout the clone wars and rebels, like she got a true hero's journey arc. And so you see that in like the Mandalorian versus the sequel trilogy. And I know there's, there's are some people that are really wild about it, but I go, man, is it just, is it my own blind cultural biases as a male, as a Christian that make that story more attractive to me? But then I, then I do see films from outside of Western culture and I see something like the Godzilla minus one story, which has very, I, I don't, there's not a, 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 I don't know if there's a Western person. I don't know if there's a, a European or an American person present in the entire film. It is all completely set in Japanese culture, Japanese actors. I'd have to look back, but I don't, I don't think there's a single white person from America or Europe in it. And it worked. Mm -hmm. I could pick up on the cultural differences. I, because I was aware of them. I know of the East and the Japanese culture's propensity for shame-based and honor-based culture versus our more, and their collectivist bent versus more of our individualistic bent. But the movie hit me on an emotional level. And I was like, this just works. And it seems like everybody that's seen it goes, that just works. So the postmodern critique would be like, well, you know, your cultural stories only work because you're in a position of power, Paul. And those stories are affirming your biases. And I go, okay, well, I do need to listen to that. But then I do see non-Western stories that just go, some of the stuff that's coming out of South Korea, I'm like, yeah, this, 
this works and it's like it should be like they should send film missionaries over to the u.s to help us get our stories right um well this so, this has been a conversation about akira kurosawa for years yes you know yes. kurosawa people said you know he influenced star wars he he inf you yeah. know seven samurai became the magnificent seven so westerns yes. you know oh yeah and and it was like you know and you can see i think probably references to kurosawa in godzilla minus one you can also see references to jaws in godzilla minus one you get a real yeah, sense of that, that in that little boat and then the the shark sure. following him um so so yeah i think that akira kurosawa stumbled on some of these grooves some of these archetypes and it didn't like there there's a a a scholar named Nicholas Wolterstorff who wrote a book called Art in Action back in the 80s. And he has this notion he calls fittingness, you know, and he goes through heavily, heavily researched that there are certain aesthetic things that that work across cultures, you know, um, the color, the a circle and the color blue, for example, or a square and the color red, you know, like things that like you would think, okay, how much of our sense of what is beautiful, et cetera, et cetera, is conditioned by our culture, certainly some of it, but not all of it, you know, <laughs> like what he's arguing in art in action, I think was very formative in me, which is that underneath we are all humans. Yes. And we're universal all human nature, human condition. Yes. And that's just, there's a certain way that we process the world and process reality. And there's a lot of wisdom in the art that you can find, all over the world. Yeah, for sure. That that nails it. That's exactly it. And culture is the arena, the distinct arenas by which our universal human nature takes on unique expression. And so I think the more I, you know, listen to you talk about these stories and I I'm mindful of the postmodern critique which seems to so heavily emphasize the actually the that I think overemphasize that culture when it comes down to it is the thing that shapes everything and that there isn't a universal human nature, which to me not only denies obviously like Christian theology, but to me it actually denies science. Like we as a human species, whether you want to look at this from a theological lens or from a biological lens, it would be absurd to think that like, you couldn't find shared motivations and instincts among all dolphins, whether you find dolphins in this specific area of the world or a different area of the world, there's going to be variations and differences, but what makes them a dolphin and their dolphinness is the shared dolphin instinct and humans are the same way. We have a universal human instinct and we can tell this through the story of Christian theology that we are descendants of Adam, right? That we share in this human nature, but we can also tell it through the biological story. And I am just, uh, I am becoming more and more convinced that uh, we might be at this point, Justin, and maybe we'll, I'll, I'll close with posing to you this question. I'll, I'll propose my theory and you tell me where you're at. I see this like story wars thing happening in our culture. Like, we tried to subvert these archetypes for a while, claiming that the archetypes were only cultural and they were being established and uh, propagated because those who were in positions of power in culture had a vested interest to continue to tell those stories. 
but I, so then what we tried to do was tell these counter stories, which were inverting those archetypes. It was using them to question them. And now as we kind of get into the meta modern frame where people are actually looking for positive reconstruction, I think we're at this crucial storytelling juncture in the West. You can kind of, I think you can feel it. It's difficult to compare to previous eras because previous eras didn't have social media. I just don't know. There are so many YouTube channels out there and, and uh, content creators out there who have made their living just being upset about the movies and stories that are coming out, which points to there's a market full of people that are really like, what is going on? And I don't want to make this like a political left-right culture war thing. I think that's deeper than that. Do you sense a similar thing going on with the way we are trying to engage the story that maybe is on top of these stories? Where do you see the current cultural moment? Are you optimistic about what might emerge? Or are you pessimistic about where storytelling in film and in television in particular is headed? Oh, I, I'm definitely optimistic. You know, um, mm -hmm. I, I, I teach in college young people and I see that they are, they have less obstacles in their way in terms of making great stories, I think, than I had not only just technically, but, you know, just intellectually, I think, you know, mm -hmm. um, I see it as, I think it just goes in cycles. You know, I think it goes, it kind of goes like, you'll get an initial kind of like drop in the pond, which is this kind of the, the more archetypal story. And then people are going to do variations of it and they're going to do their take on it and they're going to do inversions of it and they're going to do alternate, you know, and eventually that sort of peters out. And then you have to have a reset. You, you, you got to, somebody will, will go and, and discover the, the true thing again and, and drop it in, drop it in the pond again and, and the cycle will happen. There's a book called Mediated by this, this guy named Thomas de Zingotita. And he calls, he, he, he talks about it in terms of commodification, you know, like, you know, somebody does something cool and original and, and, and then it becomes, on a meme and then it becomes a coffee cup and then it becomes, you know, and until finally everyone's tired of it and then something new needs to emerge, you know, something like that. But I think in within, and this is, if people can learn this, I think this will really help is that the notion, like I was saying, like in Greece, when they were doing those festivals, the notion of a cal of a, like a liturgical calendar, you know, like this is the story we do at this time of the year. This is the story we do at this time of year. And then the, it follows the cycle. So every day is a little cycle. Every year is a little cycle and every life is a little cycle. And these are the stories that go along. That's, I think, the way I suspect it's supposed to work. And that's when a culture really coheres together is when those stories sync up, you know, so it's like Christmas, Easter, you know, um, we, we it, it's kind of like we have very, very like the ruins of what that was for someone that would live in a church calendar, let's say, where you have all these stories kind of lined up that are there to help you with each stage of life. You know, when people start to lose connection with meaning and then they start going into inverted stories because they've lost connection with meaning and they're just trying to figure things out. You know, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with somebody who's exploring postmodern storytelling or something like that. They're just trying to figure things out, you know, but I'm thinking that eventually um, 
you'll stumble upon something universal. And then that will naturally cause little communities to form that causes that to grow. And um, that's what happens. You know, that, that's the cycle, you know. So sometimes there's a flood that kind of washes everything away. Like the 70s was a, a, a similar time. It's like easy rider, the graduate, you know, it's like, let's just throw everything. You know, everything is plastic in the graduate. He says, my parents, they're plastic. That was the thing in the 70s, right? So it washed everything away in a sense, like a little flood of the Nile, but that left a lot of fertile um, soil. And then what grew? Um, our Jaws, which is an archetypal story, uh, Star Wars, which is an archetypal story, you know, and then you, you kind of have this little renaissance, somebody like um, pretty much all those guys from USC at that time really just said, let's just make uh, Robert Zemeckis was a good example, too. He's got great story instincts that are pretty much he, he hits those archetypes pretty well. I do a lot of, of uh, referencing of Robert Zemeckis in my YouTube series. So that's what I see right now. The next generation of filmmakers, the next generation of novelists and storytellers, they don't, they don't have a, a, a political agenda on their shoulder, that I, I think, or a chip on their shoulder. I think they're tired of that. They're not going to try to, to take narrative and story and creativity and, and make it subservient to a political agenda. That doesn't seem to be what I see in the younger generation. Um, I think that they, people are going to be looking for these universal nuggets of wisdom and people are going to recognize them as little diamonds in the rough or nuggets of wisdom. And it's going to be, it's going to be great. That's very optimistic. And I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that, especially from someone that works in the industry and has students that could be potentially the, the next generation of formative storytellers. And I, I would like to be, I, I feel a sense of optimism too, but it's connected it's connected to my Christian theology that, that where the, the story en where the story ends is ultimately better than where we are right now. And just kind of figuring out how to navigate those, those, those cyclical seasons. There are things, there have been things to learn from the deconstructive storytelling. There have been things to learn. And if we don't learn them, we will go back and repeat that pattern again. Um, but I'm also really optimistic about, possibility that these stories which are not again whether they're like really bad christian movies or really bad uh political disguised as a movie the story that uh it's that's really encouraging to hear that from your vantage point as you engage at least with your students that they're they're hungry for for something for something more and uh, I'm I'm optimistic, and I think there's actually there is really good stuff uh, that that is out there right now too as well. So, Justin, thank you. I, I'd love to you know have periodic check ins throughout the year and maybe talk about particular things that that you're watching or you're reading um, because I, I I love this discussion. I know my listeners and viewers are going to love it as well. I'll make sure that uh, in the description below that I post a link to Justin's YouTube channel where again he hinted at some things like even when you're talking about the two different kinds of tragedies. I was like, oh, I want to come back and pick on that for a bit. But check out the, the work he's doing on YouTube, some really fascinating YouTube lectures that if any of this kind of tickled your fancy, there's plenty to go deeper on. And I'm sure, Justin, I'd love to have you back to keep talking about uh, the subject matter. Thanks, Paul. And dude, I, I love your stuff. I love Thank your you. video you, about um, Godzilla minus one, your, your YouTube videos, your lectures. Um, they're great. 
Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Well, I hope you found today's conversation helpful with Justin Wells. If you're interested in finding out more about Justin's work, I've provided a link to his website below where you can check out his writing, his lectures, his book. You can pick up his book as well. And uh, if you're on YouTube and you subscribe to channels on YouTube, you could check out Justin's Morning Coffee. That's the name of his channel on YouTube. A bunch of great lectures. You can do a deep dive into these seven basic story patterns, the step seven basic story shapes that he mentioned in today's conversation. And there's some really fascinating lectures there. I want to give an extra special thanks to those who have been supporting this podcast on Patreon at the Theology 201 level or higher. Clint, Brandon, Brent, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, J. Tom, Justin, Kate, Luke H., Matthew, Paul, Rob, Sam, Stephen H., and Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. Again, I know I always say this, it isn't simply a platitude, uh, but I really can't do this without your support. And many of you have been supporting for years, and I am so deeply thankful for it. Even if your name wasn't mentioned, maybe you're not supporting it at Theology 201 level or higher. Even if you're just supporting at the two buck a month level, boy, I, let me tell you, I'm really thankful for you too as well. So I appreciate all the support. If you have questions, if you have something that just hit you, you had an epiphany while listening to this podcast, reach out to me in the discussion forum for this episode or on our Discord server. And uh, I would love to hear what was running through your head as you were listening. Tell me about it, bring your questions. Maybe you even have some disagreements or objections. We don't mind those either. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.